0: Christians, Jews, Muslims, and many other faiths have called UW home over 275 years. We explore the story of UW Madison's spiritual history after the music.
1: Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service. And check out our upcoming events at UpperHouse.org.
0: Welcome to Upwards. I'm Jesse Kootman, Upper House's podcast producer. And while I'm normally on the other end of the production desk, In this episode, I sit down with our normal host, Dan Hummel. As one of our two resident historians and director of a university engagement here, Dan has been working on a written history of UW's spiritual history. In this episode, he shares UW's host of rich narratives and compelling figures that tell a captivating part of the grand story that has become the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dan earned a B.A. and M.A. from Colorado State University and a Ph.D. from University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's an author of two books on American religious history, The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, How the Evangelical Battle Over the End Times Shaped a Nation, and Covenant Brothers, Evangelicals, Jews, and U.S.-Israeli Relations. Dan was born in California and grew up in Germany as a missionary kid and then in Colorado, and since 2010 has called Madison home. Dan and his wife, Veronica, stay busy raising three little boys. We hope you enjoy this upwards conversation with our normal host, Dan Hummel. Uh, Dan, this has been something uh, i has been on my calendar for a while that I've been really excited about. I, it's not every day that you get to interview somebody on their own podcast. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's not in your podcast, but you, you're the host, you do a lot of the guests and so forth. And uh, I think it's just a thrilling kind of conceptual thing to like interview Somebody on their own podcast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very meta. <laughs> it is super meta. Uh, and also, for for those of you guys who don't know me, I am Jesse Koopman. Um, I am the producer of the Upwards podcast. I do a lot of the background work. Uh, and Dan and I spend a lot of time, but although never seemingly enough, time together during the week uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. to talk about podcasting and, and work together. Uh, on today's episode, he is our guest. And we are going to be talking to Dan Hummel, uh, director of Spiritual... Uh, no.
2: University engagement. University engagement here
0: My at Upper House. My wife
2: is the director of spiritual formation. So thank you. Um, we're in that space. I think about that a bit, but I am the director of university engagement here at Upper House. And uh, you've been here how long again? Uh, a little over three years. Yeah. 2019 is when I came on uh, staff. So I had a few months before COVID hit, and then, uh, it, which is an interesting way to start a job. And then have had about a year now where things have felt like um they were before probably what they were like before covid yeah so one of the
0: kind of defining things about Dan for those of you who know, don't know him personally he is through and through a historian uh virtually everything he looks at through a historical lens uh and i find that fascinating we have a professional historian on a pretty small staff of an institution here at the Upper House the Christian Studies Center movement is is really great but a historian why do you think Upper House hired a historian
2: uh, well, that's, that's an interesting question. I, I would say we have two historians, actually, because our colleague Eric um, is also a historian. In fact, he even lectures in the UW uh, History Department. So um, we are extra historically minded here uh, at, at Upper House. Um, I think, uh, not to toot my own discipline's horn too much, but I think historians tend to be pretty good at being able to talk in sort of ways that can reach a general audience. Um, the historians should be good storytellers or people who are interested in story and most people like stories. And, um, you know, a, another, uh, maybe less optimistic take is there are a number of very talented historians. I'm not counting myself in this group, but talented historians and other humanities, PhDs, people who go through the PhD process, English philosophy, who, um, Are looking for work uh, after the PhD. It's it's a pretty tough job market in the academic world. Many of these people have great specializations, great uh, sort of curious minds, and they're looking for places to work. And so um, we actually have a number of people like that. We our newest colleague is a philosophy uh, PhD, and uh, he has his own story, but similar thing where uh, he saw a a good way to use that that training and that expertise in the sort of Christian study center. Setting, So I think if you surveyed Christian study centers more broadly, there's a lot of history, English, theology, PhDs that are working at those study centers.
0: Fascinating. And uh, kind of a segue for that. You guys have been working on a specific project here where your histories really come into into play. Um, Yeah. Uh, we've been working on a big grant project for the Templeton Foundation. Yeah, John Templeton Foundation. You uh, always need to say
2: John Templeton Foundation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so tell tell me about that project and and where, where it's kind of some of the basis for our interview today is is the spiritual history of the UW and it's it's involved in that. Tell me about the project for the John Templeton Foundation that you've been working on.
2: Yeah, so it, it goes back to 2020 um, and we uh, we applied for a small grant and and the work that we're going to talk about today comes out of that grant. Um, it's sort of one of these test grants. We have not worked with the Templeton Foundation before, but we, um, we basically pitched a bunch of things that Christian study centers were uniquely suited to do. And we said, Templeton, part of its vision is to sort of shape conversations around universities. Well, we're on a university, we think we can shape it in ways that are conducive to what Templeton wants. One of the ones that we decided to try, partly because I was on staff, was to do some history around religion at UW. UW is a large public university, which means it has never had a seminary or divinity school. And in large part, it's been understood to be a secular university, um, both culturally and even legally, that it's, it's sort of not part of the mandate of a public university to have a particular religious angle. Having been here as a student for many years and worked at Upper House, I knew it was a little more complicated than that, that even though the UW itself doesn't have a particular religious um doctrine or view many religious people have worked in it and it has actually intersected with organized religion a lot
0: uh, thank you so much for sharing uh, a little bit about what the project is and i'm excited to get into kind of what you're doing in that project mm-hmm. uh so uh before we do that though i did want to ask one personal question a little sure. bit to dig into uh give me a little bit of background why you so i know you are a history uh, phd i know you attended here for your phd at uw Uh, But why why are you somebody who is well suited to this specific project, and why are you excited about doing it?
2: Well, you might argue I'm not the the best suited. Um, I did study American religious history; that was my field, Um, though I did not really study universities or or the history of education. Um, But it is a field that I've been sort of a hobbyist in for a while. I like learning about the institutions that I'm a part of, and um, uh, and I also have this great vantage point at Upper House to see the university to see uw from a certain perspective and to have deeper relationships with the very diverse and vibrant religious community in madison and how many of those organizations have been here for a century or more and how they understand uw Mm -hmm. so i am a historian through and through as you said so i knew what it would take to sort of do the background reading to do some archival research which i did at uw to sort of be able to be sure that i was telling a true story um, but it has been also a learning experience where I've definitely felt like this is pretty far outside of what I really know, uh, which is more about evangelical history and, and the 20th century. Um, but it's been great. And there's also amazing resources on campus, uh, historians and others that work on campus that know a ton about the history here that I've leaned on for a lot of the story as well. Awesome. And then
0: uh, on a personal note, I also know your faith is deeply important to you. You mm-hmm. wouldn't be on staff here at Upper House if that weren't right. the case. So I, I imagine that this particular project had a draw for you in understanding both where your home is and, and the the role that you have here at Upper House being on UW's campus, but also just that it allowed you to uh, practice sharing your faith in a way.
2: Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't uh, tr- try to make that too heavy in the stuff that we produced for this um, we want these. We want the stuff that we've produced uh, through this Templeton Grant to be very widely accessible for people who have no religious faith, for them to learn a bit about what UW is. But certainly on a personal level, um, I came to UW already a Christian, and I was eager to learn about what offerings were on campus, and there were a lot more than I could have even imagined from just sort of a you know a website view of UW's website or something like that. But a lot of it's hidden, or a lot of it is just not detectable from the outside. And so part of what this uh history has let me do is sort of think through how i came through uw and the communities i related with and also through the history to just try to elevate and give a sense to readers um to be imaginative when they are on campus to understand that just what they see isn't all that's going on and there are literally over the course of uw's history hundreds of different groups of christians jews muslims and many other faiths who have found meaning and community at uw and that that's a that's something that um, certainly parents might like to hear as they're thinking about sending kids to UW. Or, um, or maybe they wouldn't like to hear. They... Or they, yeah, or That's, that's <laughs> true, depending on who they are. Um, Part of the spiritual history of UW is controversy. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, but also give the UW an imagination, uh, the administration, faculty, staff of uh, just what's happening under, under their noses in a way. But certainly uh, the people who are coming into their classrooms, who are attending lectures. Many of them are religious, and many of them see the division between UW and their religion not nearly as starkly as is sometimes uh, depicted.
0: Awesome. Well, I think that's a great place to start digging into the the, the nuts and bolts of that history. So uh, being born and bred a Wisconsinite, native Madisonian, I know a decent amount about uh, the, the the state and its history. And as I'm, not, I'm certainly not a historian by any stretch, but a lo- fellow lover of history. Mm. Uh, but I'd be curious if you could, for the uninitiated, Give us some of the the ones and twos, the 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 bare bolts of of what is the history of the UW system or the UW Madison campus in particular. Mm-hmm. When was it founded? Underneath what guys? How was it formed, et etc.
2: Yeah, and I was not born and bred a Wisconsinite, so feel free to, to add anything, Jesse, as I'm talking. I come at this as a as a historian who's definitely done a lot of reading, but I haven't lived, uh, you know, the the native Wisconsin life. But uh, Wisconsin's founded as a state in 1848. So 175 years from 2023 and the university is also founded in 1848. It's in the state constitution that the state should create a university at or near the center of government. And so we're one mile away from, um, the capital here. And, uh, UW starts as a very grassroots, uh, underfunded small college, uh, university. Uh, the first, uh, the first class, I believe, was 19 students, and it cost basically uh, a carton of eggs a week to attend UW. i many students today would be very jealous of that. Uh, I, I certainly am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish my right. education cost that much. That's right, it was only, uh, in its first decades, it was only available to men, um, and certainly it was not available to, it was also class-limited, uh, mostly well-to-do families, or families where the expectation was these sons would sort of enter um, what we call now white collar work or above. So, w-
0: well, w- with that being said, so being a small institution and uh, for those people, what was academic and spiritual life like at that point? What were the degrees? Was there a spiritual presence on the mm-hmm. campus at that point in time
2: already, or was that something that formed later? It was. It was there from the beginning. So, within that same state constitution, it was the um, the the sort of statement that UW would be non-sectarian or would not teach sectarian teachings. Sectarian is a word we don't use a lot today and certainly non-sectarian isn't, but sectarian for them meant basically different types of Protestant traditions. So Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, their thinking was, uh, this is, you have to get back into the mindset of 1840s. Most people who are making these decisions are white and they're Protestant. And so they did not want to create a university that was sort of side with the Presbyterians over the Baptists. These are things today we can't totally appreciate sort of the, the, the uh, intensity of the debates, but back then these were big issues. And so UW is going to be non-sectarian. That did not mean it would be secular. So in the first decades of UW, all students were expected to attend chapel. There were chapels in all of the buildings at UW North and South Hall. Wow. Um, and uh, many of the faculty led Bible studies. Um, and it was very much a religious campus. It was sort of in the blood. No one really thought anything else could be possible in a way. There were outsiders who were critical of the way UW developed in this way. And the two sort of extreme wings of that, there were what we, in this language we would call sectarians or those Baptist Presbyterians, others who thought UW should pick a side and Mm -hmm. should be a Presbyterian school. Um, and so they would often call UW godless. And that today can read like, oh, UW's secular. What they meant is that they weren't, that UW was not following the particular doctrines that they thought were the correct ones. So on that note,
0: was, is that weird for that time? 1848, were there a lot of other colleges being established around that time period? And was it similar to how they were being established? Or was this a novel thing? Or what was it like in the grander scheme of, of the birthing of colleges in that era?
2: Yeah, so that's where the public part of UW's mandate is interesting. There were definitely other colleges, um, Beloit college, Lawrence college, um, Carroll college. These are all colleges in Wisconsin that have denominational affiliations. And they were called at the time, sectarian colleges. The point of them was to, was for Presbyterian students to go to Carroll college and to come out better Presbyterians. UW was unique in Wisconsin for being non-sectarian and was sort of the underdog at the time. The entire education landscape in UW and in most of the country was sectarian or denominational schools. UW was part of this wave of public universities in new states. So as you think of how states, if you go further and further west over the 19th century, new states are being formed. Many of them are creating public universities. This non-sectarian thing is very common for those public universities because the state does not want to get into the business of sort of promoting one uh religion over the other though they were in a broader sense today we'd see them as promoting protestantism of some variety over the very pluralistic diverse religious offerings we have today going back then the demographics were much different and so um protestantism it was more about sort of mediating between these protestant factions awesome so what was campus life like not just for students but on whole
0: i know it was a really small institution and there wasn't a large student body at that point we talked about having chapels and so forth in in classes and uh from professors and so forth but what w- what was life like there for the the faculty for the uh for
2: the students and what was what were maybe some of the prominent figures that were involved in that yeah well one big difference from today was um everyone took the same classes so there was not the ability to major in a particular field everyone took sort of the common core so there was a much, maybe you could say a tighter sense of shared conversation. Everyone read the same stuff. Um, the faculty knew what every, all the other faculty were teaching. Um, even through the 1870s, so we're talking the first 30 years of the school, there were under 500 students. So wow. for many people, that's probably smaller than their high school. Yeah, that seems crazy to me. Yeah. Um, and, and so it was, it, it had that feeling of sort of a small, um, at the time that felt big because there weren't schools that were bigger, but for us today, that would feel quite small, um, intimate. You'd probably know most of the people in your college. Um, The early yearbooks are are funny because they are, they look more like high school yearbooks today. (laughs) People have nicknames and other things Mm -hmm. that you just imagine today that would never be possible. Yeah.
0: For those who aren't uh, familiar with the UW campus, we're at about what, 40,000?
2: 45,000 students if you count grad students. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And, um, you know, and just think about how many different majors there are. Many, many students never take the same class, of course. So, uh yeah, so totally different in that sense the other one of the other big differences were that faculty and students were much more deeply involved in each other's lives in a way than is is now, and not in any i mean I'm sure there were examples of inappropriate ways, but more that faculty were seen as sort of mentors to these students, much in the same way that like at a small high school you the the teachers would be mentors to the students yeah. and so um that meant that uh, uh faculty were um, sort of doing extracurricular activities with students were um, seeing themselves as spiritual mentors to students. Remember, everyone's a Protestant more or less at this time, except for a few uh, outliers. And so um, it, it would have felt a lot different to be a student than uh, It would be, feel much more like a liberal arts college. And that's really what UW started as, was a liberal arts college with its curriculum than it does today as a research university.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. Uh, you would think like here in Madison or Wisconsin, generally B., ag-oriented specifically or be yeah. geared towards the industries of Wisconsin. But that, that's really cool. Well, that comes later.
2: Um, we are a land-grant university at UW. That comes in the 1860s. The big land-grant act is in 1862, right during the Civil War. Um, and of course, UW is known for its agriculture and its applied research. That's another way to think of more broadly. It, UW is known for sort of doing research around problems that farmers and others are, are dealing with. That comes in the late 19th century so about 50 years after uw is founded it becomes one of the prominent agricultural schools in the country by that time there are thousands of students and it's just changed a lot since that early phase by that time too at the end of the cent- at the end of the 19th century uh things like chapel are no longer part of the student life experience either nice.
0: so before we move on into uh, this, some of the earlier eras of it talking about the formation who are some of the prominent figures? in the early life of the UW and are there any fascinating stories about uh the spiritual history in the way it was formed and the people who formed it
2: yeah I'll 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 highlight two the first is the first president John Lathrop and uh he was president from 1849 to 1858 so for about the first decade and the one thing I'll highlight with him is he was uh important for really framing that non-sectarian identity if you go on the campus um uh, you can g- sort of walk into a- uh, Alumni Park, and there's this big eye on the bottom of the bridge, and that is sort of the seal of UW, and it's this all-seeing eye. looks sort of weird. looks possibly part of the Illuminati or something. Um, it is a it's a sort of symbol from the Renaissance era about God's eye, and um, that was uh, one of Lathrop's attempts to sort of find a symbol that most Christians could buy into, but wasn't explicitly Christian or, or even Protestant, um, in a way for him to signal, like, we're not going to have a cross or something that's sort of overtly Protestant or Christian. We're going to have something that's a little more general, a little more non-sectarian. And Lathrop really sort of set that trajectory that later presidents picked up on. Um, the, the, probably the most important early president is John Bascom and his name is all over UW. Now we have Bascom Hill. Yeah. Bascom Bascom Hall. Hall. And Bascom Hall is where the administration sits. That's where the chancellor has uh, her office. And John Bascom was, um, like John Lathrop, um, a clergyman uh, who uh, had seminary training. This is a constant, uh, consistent thing with early presidents is they have clergy uh, backgrounds. And Bascom was a very religious person. Uh, he was a Protestant. Uh, he was a Congregationalist. He was uh, what we call now sort of a liberal Protestant. He he was trying to merge science with his faith. Um, and he really shaped a lot of the curriculum during his period. He was here in the 1870s and 1880s. He also, uh, so a lot of the curriculum, mo- most early students had to take a, an apologetics course, believe it or not, mm-hmm. about proofs for God. Um, imagine that today. Uh, that is just so, I don't mean that in any way beyond just like that is so bizarre. If you just take I, the curriculum today, that would be very intensely interesting to see
0: at UW. Right. Right. I, I could see it almost being the opposite. I could see you having to take a philosophy of
2: religions course that kind of disproves <laughs> or, or certainly pluralizes what we mean by God or something yeah, like that. That too. The other thing that Bascom did, which lasted for, for many decades was he instituted a baccalaureate sermon. So and he called it a sermon. And so every, during every graduation uh, week, uh, you'd have the graduation ceremony. The Sunday before it, Bascom, during his 13 years, would get up and give a sermon. And these sermons read uh, like sermons. They invoke God. They invoke the kingdom of God. Some of them sound sort of like revival sermons. Um, but this was his attempt to sort of have a bully pulpit once a year, where he could sort of set the agenda for the university on very Christian terms. And we read that today and it feels, you know, you read it and it feels very narrow in terms of what he's appealing Mm -hmm. to. He's assuming everyone in the crowd believes in the kingdom of God, believes not only that, but believes a certain sort of Protestant understanding of what that means. Um, and, And so we can see the limitations of that. We can also see how that shared understanding really infused those people with a shared sense of purpose that they were, they were advancing the kingdom of God in, the, in their language. And, um, and, and Bascom, you know, sort of marshaled that energy and, uh, certain later things that are really sort of uh, popular today about UW, including like the Wisconsin idea come out of this highly Protestant, uh, context in the late 19th century.
0: Yeah. So you referenced the Wisconsin idea there. Uh, I know our audience isn't all here in Madison and right. while it's, for those of us born and raised here, most of us know what that
2: is. What what is the Wisconsin idea? Yeah. Well, I would say most of us think we know what it is. I don't know if any of us can be super precise in defining it, but it's the general sense that the border, this is one of the famous phrases, the borders of the university are the borders of the state, which is that what UW does in its halls, in its classrooms should be of relevance to everyone in the state of Wisconsin. This is part of that public university Mm -hmm. mentality that we're not an ivory tower, we're not sort of trying to shut ourselves off from the public, but we're here to serve the public. Yeah, the way I've always heard it is the interests of the state are reflected in the interest of the university. Yeah, that makes total sense. And, and one sort of historic way that that has happened is, particularly in the progressive era, which is the early 20th century, UW and the Capitol and the governor's office were very closely uh, collaborating on policy and, and laws to try to sort of bring improvements to all different parts of industry and labor. With research done at UW, that's been one way. Another broader way is the is is what we talked about with um, agriculture, which is that UW can be a place where we can problem solve the problems that farmers are having. Which is at particularly back then, which was a a big chunk of Wisconsinites were farmers. Oh yeah, or, the vast majority of was right. agricultural. Right. So so the idea of having sort of a think tank down in Madison that could um, actually be dialoguing with farmers understanding their needs and then doing the research needed to improve those things that's at the core of the wisconsin idea we talk about it today in a lot of different ways in fact today it's talked about in sort of a global sense that the wisconsin idea is actually about sort of improving or trying to solve global problems including environmental problems and others so it's, def- it's definitely moved from that original vision the one thing i'd want to highlight about that original vision was, um, and this isn't to sort of uh, sort of take a victory lap or anything, but the people who came up with it were all of a certain type of Protestantism, which was this social gospel, liberal Protestantism that really wanted to find Christian ethical solutions to social problems. And Baskin was part of that. Later, leaders like Charles Van Ice were part of that world. And so, you really, historically, you can't separate the Wisconsin idea from this broader religious context that was really um, powerful at UW at the time. Yeah. So earlier you were referencing that
0: kind of first 30-year period. Mm-hmm. So let's let's assume we have that mostly covered. Is that accurate? Yeah. yeah. So what's the transition at that 30-year break? Why did that number resound with you earlier in terms of the first 30 years? Is it the Civil War? Is it something that transitioned at UW? What was the shift there? And what does the next era look like of UW's history?
2: Yeah. So that first 30 years, uh, well, I'd say 40 years, ends when Bascom retires and and leaves. The next president is Thomas Chamberlain. Uh, there's a Chamberlain Hall here that's named after him. And uh, he brings in a much different sensibility, particularly around religion. So if we're just talking about religion, Chamberlain is, he's vaguely Protestant. He grew up Protestant. His father was actually a Methodist circuit rider. But Chamberlain himself does not want to identify with any particular tradition. Um, and he actually, he you, you could see him as sort of a secularizing type figure, though he would talk about God in certain contexts. He wants to get the university away from not only um, sort of this intense Protestant culture, but also the liberal arts uh, curriculum. And he's not the only one, but he's definitely someone who's thinking about that land grant mission, thinking about applied research. He himself is a geographer, and he's very important for for mapping um, Wisconsin geographically. And he uh, really is the beginning of making UW a major research university. Um, The student population between the time Bascom retires and the early 20th century, balloons. It's it's in the thousands by 1900. And it, that starts under Chamberlain. And then Chamberlain does other things that sort of prod at the culture that he came into, including he still does deliver a couple sermons, those baccalaureate sermons. He refuses in one of them to cite the Bible. And, you know, that, that might seem like a small thing. At that time, that was like a huge, you know, uh, throwing shade at Bascom and that yeah. tradition before. So that's why, in, in, the, in the way I tell the story, that's a big turning point culturally for UW that does, I mean, there's still these continuities of most people are Protestant who are at UW.
0: Are they still having chapels and stuff? In- no. Nope.
2: Uh, interestingly, Bascom was the one to move those to be voluntary as opposed to a mandatory. And he had his own reasons, which was more about, like, students should want to do this rather than us telling them that he, he wanted everyone to do it, but he didn't want to impose it. By the time Chamberlain comes in in the late 1880s, uh, there are no more chapel uh, times. the The sermon, the baccalaureate sermon, is sort of that hangover, and as I mentioned, he sort of tweaks that uh, itself. So this is the period when um, UW really starts looking a lot more like it does today, at least on paper. There's still far fewer students. We're still talking, you know, three four thousand students as opposed to forty five thousand students. Um, but you're getting a sense of the broader diversity of of majors you can major in. And for the religious story, the other important thing is this is the era when a lot of the organizations or churches that we see on campus, uh, around campus today, actually arrive at UW. Um, So if we think about Press House, which is a major Presbyterian uh, church uh, just across the street from us here, or St. Paul's, which is the major Catholic uh, center on campus, these are arriving right around the, the turn of the century. Um, and I can go into, you know, sort of exactly, uh, why they, why they arrive. Um, yeah. I, I love that. So th- this is a story that I've always
0: found fascinating and I don't know if it's unique to UW, mm-hmm. but the whole notion of having all these, I mean, it's not just those two, there's like yes. what four, five, six churches that are all more or less on campus, right? right. uh, here at UW. And it, I've always found that interesting because I don't see that at least
2: personally when I've gone to other campuses. Um, wh- wh- how did that get started and, and why is that that way? Yeah, and it's bound up with the story we've been talking about. Um, UW is somewhat unique. I don't want to claim any super uniqueness to UW, but certainly it's striking when you come and you visit. Um, there are a number of churches that appear like they might be on campus if you don't. I mean, there's no boundaries, um, but they're not. They're all private. UW does not sort of own any, any churches. But um, they are the product in part of UW itself deciding to move away from that liberal arts curriculum which did include moral education, and we talked about proofs for God and stuff like that, as the UW gets out of that business uh, under Chamberlain and later successors, they don't necessarily think those things are not valuable. They just don't think UW should be teaching them. And so instead of dropping them and just forgetting about them, they actually make consistent public calls for churches to set up shop right next to campus so that the churches can do the moral formation part and the UW can do sort of the the education part, the, the sort of content education part. And that is um, maybe uniquely successful call at UW in that between 1900 and 1930, you just get this explosion of architecture around campus and you get dozens and dozens of different churches and ministries that are serving students come to campus. So that mm-hmm. by um, you know 1920, 1930, there is just a very thick, vibrant, um, religious life for students centered mostly around these churches, also around the YMCA, which is a very, and it, YMCA um, stands for Young Men's Christian Association. It's often just called the Y today. But in its founding in the late 19th century, it was very evangelistic. It was very evangelical in its orientation. And it was also quite ecumenical. So it didn't care if you were a Methodist or a Presbyterian. It cared if you were sort of very religious and, and into the Bible and, and other things or not. And so that's just a, all that sort of architecture and infrastructure for religion emerges in the same period that UW is growing into this research university.
0: Yeah. So I'm curious then was there, was there a divide in terms of like faculty and stuff like that as well with that? Were they not allowed at that point to teach in in classes, or was there any sort of um,
2: gap that was formulating there, yeah. or, or or was it still a lot of crossover just not formal? yeah and and there's there's no sort of precise point where things change so it changes slowly over time but definitely over time as the curriculum changes faculties sort of uh the the way the faculty relate to the students change as well and so um and this is also with the expanding of the university into an applied research university so the student ministries and the churches are filling a gap as well that faculty would have filled in the early decades of being sort of the mentors to the students or hosting bible studies you uh, you could still find examples, you can find examples of that all through the 20th century where certain faculty are hosting Bible studies, but it's certainly um, the anomaly versus the norm, Gotcha. Um, the further you go. And I, I'd say a lot of those changes are happening right around the turn of the century. Yeah. Nice. So was there
0: any pushback to that? So as, as UW mm-hmm. starts to become more non-sectarian, uh, were there big criticisms of that from the population, for, from the government, or from the students or the faculty? Uh, was that something that was widely embraced? What was it like, that
2: yeah. transition? Yeah, and I'll, I'll take it at two angles. So one is part of these the sort of changing role of religion is also because the religious community is diversifying. Um, there are many more Catholics and Jews that are part of the UW student body and even joining the faculty starting in the late 19th century. There is pushback on that for sure. Um, like most states, uh, that were founded with a strong Protestant culture, Jews and Catholics were seen as outsiders and potentially threatening to the social order. That's a little less so for Catholics because there there's was a been a pretty large Catholic population in Wisconsin for a long time. But even there at a place like UW, in the year 1900, uh, 90% of the students were Protestant. And you had a small segment that were Catholic, eight, five to 8%, and then a very, very small segment that were Jewish. And that changes over time. And as that grows, there is pushback in the broader community about sort of what's this university doing bringing in sort of all these foreign um sometimes actually foreign students but certainly foreign to the state um religious communities um there's also pushback within the university certain faculty don't like the close connection the university is making with churches and are seeing this as uh, problematic and um you know there's this common phrase When we talk about this type of stuff about the wall of separation between Mm -hmm. church and state, a famous Thomas Jefferson phrase, um, certain, you know, people interpret the wall differently, but you start seeing that type of language emerge around this time that certain people are saying, Hey, this wall seems low, or we want to raise this wall. Um, while others are saying this is perfectly fine and there, there's nothing uh, to look at here.
0: Were there any specific prominent figures that come to mind in that era about, around that or?
2: Yeah, I mean, a, a number of the um, presidents of UW had to deal with this. And so you sort of hear it from, as, as who they're responding to. Um, so um, Charles Kendall Adams, who was the president um, after Chamberlain, um, is someone who is actually advocating for closer cooperation between churches and the university. And he is um, responding to people who are actually asking about that wall and saying, is this sort of forsaking the nonsectarian? It depends on what you mean by nonsectarian, right? So people are invoking that saying, um, you should be out of the business of religion at all. Adams is understanding that to be, no, 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 we're in the business of religion. We're just going to not pick a side on that. And this is, this should be, this is a familiar debate that happens all through the 20th century, not just in higher education, all across American society, as the society itself is diversifying in terms of religion, and as there's a growing number of people who don't want to be affiliated with any religion, wondering, um, are these public institutions places where I can actually you know exist um, without having to sort of pray or read the Bible or other things this we're in a really early phase in the in like the year nineteen hundred around that, but Adams and then Van Heiss, who I mentioned before and has a very tall building here <laughs> named after him. Um, they both are probably at the crux of dealing with these new concerns around how close UW is with the churches. There are prominent faculty, particularly Richard Ely, who's a very major figure who taught here for 35 years, um, was was a sort of major figure in reform movements around the country. He advocated for even closer cooperation um, between the UW and churches. Uh, and what,
0: that, what format did that take? So, I mean, if there's being pushback, especially from like the president. Uh, how was he involved in that? What was he doing specifically to advocate for the the further connection?
2: Yeah, well, in part he was a very active faculty member, so he would actually be uh, you know a faculty sponsor for some of these churches and sort of push his students to go into them. He also went around the country speaking about the need for public universities to partner closely with churches. and he had a but he had a much bigger sort of critique of those denominational schools that that we talked about at the beginning um and he thought they were basically uh, to Blunt, useless. He thought they didn't teach well and that they were all going to go away anyway, and that churches should not be spending money um, trying to build their own schools. They should be spending money building churches next to major public universities like UW, which Ely thought were the future of higher education. And so he made that case here, and he definitely uh, sort of ruffled feathers um, with the administration here. He would go f- as far as he could go with that, even further than even with accommodating administrators. And then he was known nationally as someone who was advocating for this. So he loved the idea that Press House and St. Paul's and the Lutheran ministry were right next to campus. That was his ideal because he, he was a Protestant himself, very pious uh, Protestant, who really um, thought all students should be Protestants as well. He, was, he had an anti-Catholic streak and other things that made, uh, him a problem for others on that front as well. (laughs) Um, who, uh, really saw, again, this is someone who's advocating for UW to not be in the business of doing religion itself. So you might see, oh, this is a secular person. Like he's sort of saying UW should stay in its lane and just do the research, just do the the sort of traditional teaching. But if you pull out, you see he's actually quite religious because he has a certain way of, of thinking of UW in a broader system that is advancing his religious ideals or his vision of a very Protestant uh, education for UW students. So he's making this big push
0: and he's going around the country. What impact does this eventually have? What do we see shift in the UW spiritual uh, components or culture? Uh, What do we see nationally as a result of of his push in this?
2: Yeah. So you might, um, you might be able to define, again, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm making, uh, I I can make statements about UW more than the (laughs) nation. Um, but the period from about nineteen twenty to about nineteen fifty is probably the most religious period in UW. And if you define that by sort of rates of student identification re- with religion and just the number of activities happening on campus, sort of officially endorsed activities that are obviously religious in nature. And um, part of that is people like Ely really getting their way and and you have you suddenly have, Dozens of churches or ministries right around campus—they're all doing programming. They're all trying to partner, um, and and you just get a lot of activity in that way. You also have uh, a couple generations of students who are quite religious coming into to the university, um, and and so they are also contributing to this sort of heightened uh, culture at UW that is just overwhelmingly. Religious, it's overwhelmingly Protestant as well. Though over that period from 1920 to 1950, it diversifies into a Judeo-Christian religiosity mm-hmm. that makes room for Catholics and Jews, and that's a that's part of a broader trend in American uh, culture at the time in American society, having to do with just the demographics of uh, of the United States, also having to do with key events like World War II, which really um, created this sort of civic religion that was basically saying if you're a religious American, particularly if you're Protestant, Catholic, or Jewish, like you're part of the uh, good culture. And um, and this really, I, I stop in 1950, you could go to 1960 probably, in the early Cold War period, as the U.S. is positioning itself against the communist Soviet Union, mm-hmm. one of the key ways that Americans understood that was America is religious, communists are atheist, And so religiosity became sort of this key part of what it means to be an American. Mm-hmm. And the universities were key institutions in in sort of uh, shaping people to think that
0: yeah and as we talk about this era 1920 to 1950 or even in the 1960s I, I can't help but think about a lot of the larger world events that are going on during mm-hmm. this time oh, or specifically American and especially in like the 1920s to 1930s we see the the Great Depression occur mm-hmm. we see um prohibition talk talk about right. the piety movement of that era yeah how does that play out on UW's campus from a, a spiritual history or a religious perspective is that Something that I know Wisconsin especially has a very interesting and dynamic history with alcohol. Yes. Uh, yes. uh, And, and, but that's a spiritual part of life for some people uh, in Wisconsin and on UW's campus for that matter. Uh, What was that era like from a a religious history perspective? Was there a lot of turmoil there? Was
2: there a lot of uh, combatant nature or was it, was it really embraced here? Yeah. Well, in Wisconsin, it's always interesting when you talk about prohibition or the temperance movement, as it was called before that because of course uh, major beer producers are in Wisconsin. Um, and this has actually been, uh, so, so on paper, these sort of progressive Protestant reformers are against alcohol in all forms. They see it as a vice, they see it as a social problem. You have to also go back to the period where um, there were very few uh, institutional or social protections for say women and children if there was an alcoholic husband. And so people like John Bascom going all the way back were very well known as temperance uh, promoters. And this was like probably the worst thing you could be as the president of UW was to basically say we shouldn't be drinking beer. Um, for many of these reformers, including someone like Richard Ely, they saw prohibition as a key part of their Christianity. And and even if it was tough in the state, uh, well, they morally thought it was, it was justified. And so that's one issue of many issues that um, are part of this, what we call the social gospel or liberal Protestant social activism in the early 20th century that were very active on campus. So the idea that we needed to reform labor laws, that we needed to reform um, uh, sort of trust laws around uh, monopolies and corporations, um, the idea that we needed to democratize education and other things. Mm -hmm. For most reformers in the early 20th century, many of them uh, in, in Wisconsin coming through UW, these were tied into a certain Protestantism in particular, but a certain religious worldview that you really can't separate. You can separate those today for, for many people. At the time, those were deeply intertwined. So kind of on that note, something I've heard a lot about uh, in in kind of my brief
0: level of looking at the spiritual history of UW as both well a Christian and a Madisonian and somebody who has deeply been involved with the university since I was young, uh, both my parents are alum, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, is the social gospel movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how the UW kind of, Trying to manipulate and work within that on some level and kind of that, that to me seems like a shoehorned in but that's from my perspective of mm-hmm. today where it's a very considered by many secular school mm-hmm. but i know at some point in time that was like embraced so right. what was the social gospel movement uh like in that era and how is that really integrated or fought against from a uw's perspective
2: yeah i would say for a good couple decades there in the like 1910 to 1930 1940 it was one of the dominating ways that not just many students thought, but faculty did as well. And again, we're talking about a movement within Protestantism to address sort of social issues uh, that were cropping up uh, largely as a result of industrialization um, and, uh, and changes in the labor force and stuff like that. And for many uh, faculty Uh, UW uh, was a great place to be because you could both be a Christian, people like Richard Ely, John Commons was another. uh, He has a building named after him here as well. um, We're in this mode. You could be a sort of liberal Protestant Christian, and you could do the most cutting edge research uh, into these social problems. And you could combine those and, uh, you know, sort of solve major issues. And so uh, UW was seen more nationally as one of the centers of social gospel research. Um, There's other areas, there's seminaries and others that that had a lot of important theologians Mm -hmm. and sort of conceptualizers of the social gospel. But in terms of the data to actually identify problems and solutions, places like UW, UW wasn't the only one, but it was a prominent uh, sort of lab for the social gospel. And this was a reputation that um, wanted much esteem in certain circles. And in other circles, as we've talked about before, a lot of people, not in that world, were looking sort of quizzically at how close it seemed God and country or church and state were at UW, including some people within UW. Um, and and that era ends in 1940 for a variety of reasons, but one of them being increasing public uh, scrutiny around uh, how closely religion and research are were being conducted here at UW. I think it's a
0: great transition point. Um, let's talk about that schism. Mm. What, what exactly happened
2: there? Where, where did where did this start, and, and how did we see that transition progress? Yeah, and, and um, it's, it's, it's never as clean, probably, as I, as I make it out to be as I'm talking, but um, we do have that Judeo-Christian era, which, which sort of follows it. And so one of the things there is, um, for many, even liberal Protestants, um, the idea of just doing a, so, a social gospel, that's a very Christian word, gospel, the idea of having just a movement of, of Protestants felt limiting by World War II. So by the 1940s. And so there was a general move to, to move towards something a little more pluralistic, something like Judeo-Christianity that still did not include a lot of people, but included more than any type of Protestant specific uh, label like social gospel. So there was a move there. There was also um, a move toward uh, what I talked a little about before, which was the civic religion way of thinking about religion, that moved away from uh social reform as the main way of of sort of seeing itself in the world and that was partly the cold war and the idea that social reform and the social gospel even felt a little too uh much like socialism felt a little too much even like communism and that wasn't widely spread necessarily within uw there was a lot of uh understanding of what the social gospel was about but certainly in, in the broader wisconsin uh, community, which is a public institution. So state taxes go to the UW. There was a sense that, um, uh, and this is a long, you know, uh, reputation of UW. It was a very progressive place and, um, and it was sort of radical. And there was definitely an attempt in the 1950s to, to correct that vision by being uh, a place of Judeo-Christian civic religion, by being a place that was, um, doing intense research around the cold war, um, both in the sciences and an increasingly in area studies. That's when you get the addition of these uh, you know, Southeast Asian studies or Middle East studies, which are interesting areas of themselves, but were funded by the federal government at this time, in part because there was a global cold war to fight. And the government needed students who could speak Arabic, um, who could speak all these, these languages where the U.S. would be involved. This was what the university saw as its mission by the 1950s, um, which does have some continuity with the social gospel reform uh, there's still a lot of reform happening. There's still a lot of um, legislation being informed by research at UW, but it's for a, a different cause than the social gospel. It's for a broader, re- uh, pluralistic cause, and it's for this more nationalistic uh, effort uh, in the Cold War.
0: Yeah. So, as we're talking about these things, I can't help but imagine what it's like during some of these times to be a student on campus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, we're talking kind of high level what is the general culture like? But um, as, as we're kind of talking through these eras, we talk about the campus churches and how they've been vibrant part of campus life. We've talked about kind of the separation uh, as we're growing further and further away from presidents who are very pro having the church be present in the classroom. Mm. What is What is student life like during this era of like the 30s or 20s to the 50s? Is it mm-hmm. something where they're growing in separation where they're existing in two different spheres and they don't really meet? Are they practicing? in the classroom, on campus. what What is student life more
2: like during that era? Yeah. And, and one really important background stat is just the ballooning of the student population in this time. Mm-hmm. So around 1920, there's um, 7,000 students, which is a huge move from the 500 during yeah. the Bascom era. But by the 1960s, there are 30,000 or more students. So you're going from 7,000 to 30,000. And the pool of who's coming is wider demographically, class-wise, Religiously. And so you're getting just a much different student population by the end of the period we're talking about than at the beginning. But I would say the continuities there, the things that are consistent throughout, are the really involved roles of those churches that are now established. They have really nice buildings by 1930, buildings that we still have around with us today. Um, Many of them are very well funded, very well staffed. Um, And you also have, by the end of that period in the 1950s, 60s, you have the influx of uh, ministries that don't have their own buildings, um, and are more evangelical in orientation to right. become the most popular, uh, ministries on campus.
0: Can you give me some examples there for yeah, that? So, who are... So
2: some of the common ones, and we work with them here at upper house today are ones like campus crusade for Christ. That's what it was called. It was founded in the 1950s, very evangelical campus ministry intervarsity Christian fellowship first, uh, sort of created a, a chapter in 1939 here at UW. Um, and there's many others that are small. Some of them come and go. Um, But there's a diversification even there of the types of Protestantism on campus that were just not there in the same way. At the same time, um, you have uh, uh, sort of a ballooning of student interest in religion right after World War II. And this is sort of uh, the glory days for certain organizations, uh, including Press House, uh, which is a Presbyterian church on campus, that um, they were known nationally as as the largest student-run Presbyterian church in the country. Wow. That meant students actually were on sort of the boards that made decisions in the church. They did have a, 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 a sort of a professional clergy there. It wasn't entirely student run, but it was a unique model. And uh, in its heyday, there were uh, multiple services every Sunday. There were hundreds and hundreds of students that attended, standing room only type stuff. Um, that model comes and goes pretty quickly. Um, by the late 60s, that church actually shuts down. Um, and, and Press House has its own interesting history, but there's a declining interest in that type of church going in the sixties that get into sort of some of the myths of or myths in a good way, I guess, um, mythology of UW in the sixties as a home of student radicalism and protest. Um, that really, uh, is a, is a good turning point from this high point of religiosity.
0: Yeah. And I'd love to talk about that next, but before we get there, I just want to ask, were there any prominent figures during this era of like the twenties to the fifties? that have stories that we should be aware of.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Um, I'll pick someone who is, um, has another building named after her, Helen White. Uh, so, um, people probably know that if they go to UW as where college library is. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was a Catholic. So already this is one, uh, you know, distinguishing mark. She's a different religion than most people. Um, she started teaching here in the late 19 teens and she taught here until 1967. So she had a massively wow. long career. She was, uh, w- the first woman to do a number of things at UW. Um, it was, uh, including, I think I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my flag on this one. I'm pretty sure this is right. <laughs> and she was the first woman to get tenure in the College of Letters oh, wow. and Science. Um, and so, uh, she is someone who was deeply beloved by her students. She, she graduated many PhDs who went on to do great things as well. She was also a devout Catholic and, uh, she attended St. Paul's for most of her time here. And, um, uh, and that was inseparable from who she was. She actually, she was an English professor. She studied sort of, um, early modern literature, much of it, religious literature, European literature. So she did have this sort of interest that merged with her Catholicism, but she also wed her Catholicism to a certain vision of, um, progressive politics or or activism. And so she was known, For advocating for women in all different areas of the university. She's also known for advocating for uh, uh, desegregation and particularly um, with African-Americans. And so in one famous example, she basically rallied um, many uh, many other faculty to protest the segregation of uh, African-American students in the 1940s on campus. And so she was one of these trailblazers who continually uh, broke down uh, walls. Um, And now she has a building named after her. Uh, but, but, um, she's someone who would have been hard to imagine for a number of reasons being at UW, uh, in an earlier era because of her gender, because of her religion, uh, among many other things. And so she is sort of this, uh, interesting figure who really does, she's here for about 50 years, um, really does shape the culture here and point to further changes down the road in terms of who's going to be on faculty and, um, uh, and, and sort of the diversity that, that they'll bring. That's great um as somebody that I would probably love to have met at some point she was a t- yeah and she she was involved in stuff way beyond UW's where in- including at the UN with the uh sort of UN was founded right after World War 2 and she was involved in that stuff too so she was a just a, a tour de force in many ways uh you brought up something that's near and dear to my heart is this whole
0: notion of segregation and mm. the the civil rights era is where we're kind of getting to in in terms of the spiritual history but what was life like for people of Of different races and ethnicities at that point spiritually. Yeah. Were they welcome in churches on campus or some of the the around campus churches? Um, I know that they had issues on campus with taking classes, but they were Mm -hmm. at that point welcomed. Mm -hmm. Uh, what was their spiritual options like in in that era?
2: Yeah. I mean, there was high segregation in the religious world, just like in the rest of society at the time. Um, by the 60, by even by the fifties, a number of the uh, and I'll even say that even by the late 40s, a number of the churches on campus um, are, are ahead on this issue, you could say, and are desegregating or welcoming anyone uh, who wants to come. But for most African-Americans in particular, um, they would be going to their own churches, uh, churches that were started because they were excluded from um, the white churches that might be their same denomination. But for you know, uh, pre- reasons of prejudice and culture, did not want African-Americans there. Um, one really interesting sort of case study are are Jewish students, which, uh, come in increasing numbers in the late 19th, early 20th century to the point that by the 1920s, almost 10% of UW students are Jewish, um, which is pretty high for a Midwest uh, big 10 school. And, um, an interesting, just, just as an illustration that history isn't linear or sort of things don't, aren't always worse in the past and better in the present. Um, up until the 1910s, um, Jews could join sororities and fraternities. Um, and there was really no question. I mean it, it, there was discrimination. I don't want to paint it too um, too too nicely, but there was not an exclusion of Jews. By the 1920s and 30s, most fraternities banned Jews from joining, and this is part of a rising anti-Semitism in on the globe, particularly in the West. And of course, we know mostly about that through Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, but through that period, through the 1920s, 30s, 40s, Jews are excluded from fraternities, and then of course they're welcomed back in the 50s as American society um, attempts to get rid of as much anti-Semitism as it can. But it's interesting because there's sort of a it's 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 okay, it's worse, and then it's better in a way where you might just expect oh the further back you go, the more excluded Jews are from these sort of shared fraternity spaces. But in fact, they uh, have this different story. And I think that's indicative, uh, each minority or marginalized group would have a slightly different version of this story. Um, and not all of them have this sort of, uh, clean arc, uh, certainly Jews don't. Um, but, uh, but by the 1950s, 1960s, there is a general sense of ecumenical Christianity on campus that is Catholic and Protestant, and you could say evangelical, um, as a subset of Protestant in there um they're all mixing together and there's an increasingly interfaith sort of sense that um the the sort of accepted um religious community is wider than even just christianity great well let's talk
0: post world war II. Mm. Let, let, getting into the 60s and even into the 70s um this is the era that my parents went to the uw and mm. I, I have many a story personally oh, <laughs> about their lives there but not spiritually um mm. and i really don't know what their spiritual life was like i've never actually had any conversations with them about that on campus. I'm curious what they would have, uh, experienced in terms of spiritual life on campus. What was it like in
2: that era? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it was, um, uh, particularly the sixties was an era of radical politics on campus for many students. Sometimes that politics had a religious valence to it. Uh, sometimes it didn't, uh, oftentimes it didn't. Some examples of when it did, um, there were many, uh, student organizations or even outside organizations attempting to help students uh, sort of as much as they could legally oppose the draft for the Vietnam War. Many of those organizations had some type of Protestant origin. Many of the places you could go on campus at the time to consult about your draft situation were religious organizations. Um, uh, St. Francis House, the Episcopal Center on campus, was one well-known one. So in some ways, religion was there with the radical politics. In, in other ways, it, uh, the radical politics wanted to get rid of religion. And you can think about many of the power movements or sort of black nationalism and other red nationalism, other movements, who really identified religion, particularly Christianity, as part of the problem, as part of what they were actually organizing against was this establishment that was thoroughly Protestant um, and was sort of using religion in various ways to justify its power. And so for a lot of the students, um, the move was to either uh, move toward a more progressive political religious community or to leave religion entirely. And one small way we know this is even in the five-year period from 1958 to 1963, so this is even before the most radical sort of era of the 60s, the number of students who answered a voluntary census about their religious affiliation, the number who had no affiliation was almost unmeasurable in 1958, by 1963, it's about 10% of students. So even in a five-year period, you have essentially thousands of students saying, I'd rather not affiliate with any particular religious community, um, whereas before that was not the case. And that number grows and grows and grows. Today, it's about 40% of students at UW don't affiliate or call themselves agnostic or atheist or something like that. And another 20% call themselves multi-faith, so they don't want to sort of land on one particular faith. So if you think about that from the sixties to today, you ha- you move from basically zero or from 1958 to today, 0% to the majority of students, either, um, picking more than one faith or no faith at all as what they identify with. That's crazy to me. I <laughs> don't <laughs> hurt my heart a little bit. Well, it, it, it's a different way. I mean, we often talk particularly in the Christian world about sort of the decline of uh, religious affiliation. And that's, you know, that's a valid way to talk about it, but I do like flipping it and thinking about the growth of something else. So what was emerging, mm-hmm. what was, what was, emerging was not just a vacuum. It wasn't just like these uh, students uh, didn't believe in anything, but they did see, at the, they identified at the time that the, the things they cared about, the church was not, or the synagogue, though Jews and Catholics actually have a much better retention rate than Protestant. It's really a story of Protestant decline. Um, but that the churches in particular did not uh, really speak to these issues in a way that resonated with the students. And that can be something that we lament as Christians, that we wish churches would have been better in the moment, but it's also sort of something you can take a lesson from, which is not just to sort of rush into the most recent social issue and make sure that you're on the you know, quote unquote, I'm making quotes um, for the audio <laughs> listeners, uh, uh, the right side of history. That's mm-hmm. not what you're, but it is to say in each moment, you need to understand what the causes are that are animating young people. And you need to have something to say to them. Yeah. As uh, for, And and as Christians, we believe there is something to be said to to these issues. Um, but But to let all that energy go into other sort of types of activism or types of activity, can mean over the long term that you lose a lot of um, affiliation. So I know
0: cultural movements can originate from multiple places, usually from a populist base or from a top-down scenario. Uh, so if we're talking about this from students, their perspective and their affiliations, do you feel like that was largely driven by the, the larger communities that they're originating from as they come to campus? Or do you think that's coming from the, the administration and the faculty at the time that's
2: kind of teaching them this distancing and, mm. and change? Right. Yeah, um it's it's the annoying answer of both um in part, but there's certainly bigger changes happening in American religion that are leading uh students coming into UW in the late 20th century to be less wedded to whatever they grew up in. Um whether that's Lutheranism, Catholicism, those are two big ones in Wisconsin or some type of evangelical Christianity or whatever. Um the, those are big trends and those are have not very much to do with higher education to be blunt. They, they're much broader social trends. Within the university, there is also, as we've talked about in earlier eras, a further and further uh, specialization of what's happening at UW, a further and further emphasis on research. And with that comes a further sort of segmentation of anything that would smack of spirituality or religion or transcendence and uh, sort of academic research. And uh, there's certainly particular examples of scholars who hold these things together but in general, um, the tendency is to further and further sort of segment what is being taught in the classroom as the field of study. And part of this is also a scale issue. So when you have a one to 10 faculty ratio or a one to five faculty ratio, you can talk about a lot more stuff. You can get into life with students. Uh, which is something that in earlier eras UW faculty did, and you can get into some of these more mushier categories, maybe of religion, spirituality, other things, often brought to you by students. If you're a faculty member, when you're teaching classrooms of two hundred, three hundred students, um, when you're trying to you know develop majors where thousands of people are graduating, um, that the the conditions there are not good for um, delving into such, such tense or or possibly touchy topics like religion. And so you get a sense that just the culture of, and this isn't unique UW, this would be across sort of public universities, many of them growing Mm -hmm. to these massive sizes. Um, religion is one of those things that goes as the culture changes into these sort of big box type, um, education institutions. Great. Well, let's look at, say
0: the next era and let's, let's kind of wrap up with this next era today and Mm -hmm. what spiritual life is like at UW, uh, in the modern era. Uh, so w- where would you draw the line for that? Would it be post-Cold War? Uh, would it be post-Vietnam or would you draw the line for the next era of UW spiritual history?
2: Yeah. I really see the period that we're, we've been talking about right now. Um, the sort of post sixties period through today. I think there's a lot of similarities. I think what we're experiencing today, um, in the 2020s is basically, a lot. There's a lot of continuity with the post-60s period. And we talked a little about the affiliation question, um, and we, we definitely see continuing disaffiliation from religion by students today. Um, another way to think about that are uh, the ministries that are on campus. And I mentioned briefly that these new evangelical ministries were arriving in the 50s, 60s uh, on campus. And those uh, ministries are ones that don't have property Often they're renting space from or checking out space from UW itself, or now using space like Upper House to meet. Um, and they're much more sort of ground up. Um, they have sort of ministry workers who come and go, um, who are trying to build up. Students often lead these groups um, a lot of the time, and uh, those are now the dominant uh, in terms of numbers. Many more students attend those types of groups mm-hmm. than do the historic. Uh, churches, or land, what we call landed ministries, the, the ones that have property. And that's a trend that you see starting in the 60s and 70s, and it just continues today. Steve,
0: so you, would you say that it's fair to to make the claim that the majority of students interact with God or their spiritual life through smaller independent
2: groups, as opposed to more institutional religion these days? Uh In a way. And when I'm talking here about are just the Christian students. Mm -hmm. Um, so most students now aren't Christian. So we're not talking about like the majority of students at UW, Mm -hmm. the majority, or at least the plurality of them aren't doing anything. Um, which is also a big shift that you can see starting in the sixties, but for the Christian students, yes, I think a lot of them are interacting in small group or these much more, um, non-hierarchical type organizations. Um, they're still institutions of a type, but they come and go and they're not really permanent. Um, and I don't even want to be th- that dismissive. They're just not sort of the traditional denominational or confessional type um, ministries. And those still exist. Uh, many of them have very valuable property around town. Many of them have changed their missions to adapt to um, a culture that is much less interested in organized religion and much more interested in um, either sort of certain uh, cultural and social values or these smaller type groups. Um, But yes, I think for particularly Christian students, when they come to campus, they're often looking for the small group they can join, the study group they can join, the one mentor they can have, uh, versus sort of joining an institution or an organized uh, religious experience. Well, Dan, I'm going to wrap up here
0: with probably the historian's least ever question Mm. that that I know of is, where do you see this going? So if this is the trajectory we've on and you've taken this big scope of Mm. UW's history from formation to today, what what do you see spiritual life looking like moving forward? Do you see this further pluralization and further uh, removing from spiritual life on campus and so forth? Where do you see the trends going and and where do you see hope for a vibrant spiritual life moving forward?
2: Yeah. And um, I don't like that question, by the way, but, um, I would also say doing the history does, and this is why historians tend to not like this question. It gives you a real humility about knowing what's going to come next in part, because if you can really get in the mind of people in the past, you can tell they didn't know. Mm-hmm. And even if you didn't know that what was happening next, you couldn't predict it even as a historian. And so, you know, th- there's part of me that says, um, there's so many times we can look at it now and sort of tell these sort of smooth sort of stories. But in the moment, they don't seem so smooth. They seem very contingent on what people are doing. Um, And yet there are these structural, broader things that are happening that seem sort of inevitable. And one of them does feel like pluralism is here to stay. Um, And so I anticipate, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, that those student uh, affiliation numbers, and if you were to pull the faculty and where they're coming from religiously, it's going to be even more diverse than it is now. Some of that will be even more faculty and students identifying as nuns or atheist or agnostic. Some of it will be an increase in Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, and other religious uh, presence on campus. Some of it might be even more, um, if it's even possible, more diversification in the Protestant world. You you just never know. Um, And a lot of this will be dependent not on the history of higher education or on UW, but on religious trends and that, that UW is just sort of having to deal with. It's not like they can set the terms on these things. Um, My hope is uh, sort of to um, maybe get into the hope more than prediction phase is that um, UW is making a turn. There has been a period for a few decades now where I think you could say the non-sectarian ideal, whatever you'd make of it, is pretty much uh, non-active. It it was, there there were a number of court cases in the 90s and 2000s where UW was the defendant. And was basically uh, found to be in the wrong on discriminating against different religious groups, Catholics, evangelicals, and others. And that really created a sort of chilled atmosphere on campus. I think that the corners turned on that a bit. Partly it is because of the leadership here and um, from the president down, realizing um, that uh, religion is a core part of students' lives and, and needs to be accommodated in some way, if not, maybe not endorsed by the university. But seen as like students are coming in with these identities, what do we do with them? Um, another is COVID actually and the the sort of mental health crisis among students and the realization by the administration that um, there need to be more tools available for students to deal with isolation, feelings of loneliness or purposelessness, and that uh, whatever else religion does, it can give people those things. It can give people community. It can give people a purpose. And so in that sense, um, we're far away from the Protestant non-sectarianism of 1848, yeah. but in another way, if the university were to go in this direction, there would be a sense of the university is interested in promoting at least some type of spirituality among students, but obviously doesn't want to pick a side on that. Um, and that could be a, a, a time where there's more collaboration and more sort of creativity in the relationship between UW And all these religious organizations around them, Um, I do think most of the organizations that are really active today are going to be around for the next few decades. It doesn't seem like there's going to be such a titanic shift, Um, but I also expect there will be a lot new. There will be newer members into the community as well. We have a an organization here on campus called the University Religious Workers, which is not an official UW group, but it is sort of the unofficial. It's official, but the the sort of um, outside of the UW, uh, collaboration among the campus ministries. Um, and I don't want to use the word ministries because, um, that is sort of a Christian word, but there's non-Christian members in there as well. Um, I see that group continuing and probably adding some members to it that are not in the, right now, all the members are either Jewish or some type of Christian. I can imagine a URW in 2030 or 2040 that has the Buddhist student organization on it, that has a Muslim representation on it. Um, and that would be a significant, you know, sort of move in the pluralization direction if you just look historically as well. So pluralism is probably the name of the game that's not groundbreaking, but it will look a little different here at UW than it does in other places. And I think UW also has a unique set of this history and also a set of tools and a set of resources right around campus that can make us, you know, sort of a, continue to be sort of a notable example. Thank you for hearing me on that one,
0: Dan. (laughs) I appreciate it very much. Well, I want to end here just with a a great statement of thanks to Dan for joining us on his own podcast Mm. uh, and uh, really letting us have an insight into what life has been like on UW's campus over the years. Um, If if we have listeners who are interested in learning further, uh, do we have any great resources for them to turn
2: to? We definitely do. Um, We have produced a number of things through this Templeton grant including a very long essay that you could read. It's on a PDF on our website that goes through a lot of what we talked about here, but in a much more sort of detailed form. We have an audio tour of part of campus, particularly the eastern part of campus, and that's on our website as well. And then we also have a short documentary that highlights some of the sort of figures and including people like Bascom and White in UW's past. Uh, that had some religious part to their identity as well. So those are all on upperhouse.org and, uh, you know, sort of available free. And we were eager just for people to um, read them, consume them and pass them on to others. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining me, Dan. And uh, I hope
0: everybody enjoys this podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. You bet.
1: Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on UpperHouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at UpperHouseUW.